Well, good morning, everybody. I am Mike Palmer, and uh, it is good to see so many of you here with us in person. And of course, we always appreciate those of you who join us online. We're going to continue in our, um, well, first, let's give us a hand to our worship team. They do an amazing job, as well as our tech folk all around the room. Thank you, guys. Uh, as we continue through our uh, sermon series uh, called Joy Together, and we're moving through the book of Philippians, uh, and keeping in mind the idea of uh, connecting and reconnecting others through the act of inviting them, I want to uh, ask you to join me at Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. And I'm going to read through verse 30. I'm going to read from the New International Version of the Bible, uh, but you can follow along on the screen if you don't have uh, anything with you or if you don't have that version with you. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. Paul says, I hope in the Lord, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it, I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. So I want to start by pointing back to a book that many of you have um, become familiar with. It was called uh, Autopsy of a Deceased Church by Tom Rainer. And it had the subtitle, 12 Ways to Keep Your Church Alive in which he discussed the results of these autopsies that he had performed on 14 churches that had died or were forced to permanently close their doors. In 10 of his 14 chapters, he discusses specific reasons for the church closings. And one of the reasons that he touches on is that the Great Commission became the Great Omission. Now, for, for those that don't know, the Great Commission is found in uh, Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus tells all of us of our responsibility to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, when Rainer talks about these autopsies, he says they revealed that there was a lot of nostalgia about the growth of the church. There was a lot of the remember when talk about the years of growing numbers and high attendance days. But he says those uh, people uh, in these dead or dying churches, however, they overlooked one thing. 
They overlook the reason behind those years of growth and those years of expansion. And he says this, he says, thriving churches have the great commission as the centerpiece of their vision, while dying churches have forgotten the clear command of Christ. So there were thriving churches that went into decline and even uh, eventually had to close their doors because they either forgot to or decided not to act on the great commission. According to Jesus, we are to go. And in our going, we are to make disciples, we are to baptize, we are to teach, and we are to trust that Jesus is with us all the time. But when going is no longer a priority, there is a very dangerous shift that is likely to occur in the church. When we don't go, our making disciples, our baptizing, our teaching, and even our trusting Jesus can and may continue. But because we're not going, we go from being outwardly focused in our discipleship efforts to becoming inwardly focused. And when this happens, we end up acting out a far different interpretation of Jesus's command in Matthew chapter 28. While he says, go and make disciples, we begin acting as if he said, when they happen to arrive, make disciples. And I'm speaking from experience. When I tell you that an inwardly focused church with a when they happen to arrive approach to ministry will spend a great deal of resources and time and effort creating ways of attracting people to church then it will connecting people to Christ. Are you with me so far? Yeah, and see, there's nothing wrong with uh, attracting or wanting to attract people to church, but our efforts to attract people to church have to be driven by our desire to connect people with Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is talking about uh, the Jews and Gentiles being reconciled through Christ when he says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you, were, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And what he's telling them is that when they were brought near, they were, it was done so by the love of Christ that was expressed in his sacrificial death on the cross. And the same is true today. We want people to be brought near by the blood of Christ and not by the worship team alone. We want people to be brought near by the blood of Christ and not by their favorite preacher or people alone. You see, when, we brought, when we're brought by or brought near uh, by anything other than the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, we begin to rely on that other thing or those other people uh, to bring us joy in the worship experience. And when those whom we're relying on for our joy are missing from the picture or somehow absent, we may find it difficult to experience the joy that God has for us when we gather together. But when we're brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are spiritually equipped to make any necessary adjustments to ensure that we receive the joy regardless of who's on stage or not. It doesn't matter who's singing up front. It doesn't matter who's preaching from the stage. It doesn't matter if my friend is sitting next to me or somebody that I've never met. What matters is I came to see Jesus. And if I came to see Jesus, I'm going to get the joy that I came for. We can't receive that kind of joy when we only come to see the worship team. We can't receive that kind of joy when we only come to see certain preachers or certain people. We receive that kind of joy when our primary purpose in coming to church is to see Jesus. And that's why we come. And that's what we want to instill in others as we invite them to join us in worship. We want to make sure that they're not deceived, that they're not fooled into coming to a place 
where uh, we are just uh, interested in singing good music, where we're just interested and making sure that, that they get a handshake at the door. We want to make sure that when you leave here, you have seen Jesus Christ. Amen? The verses I read in Philippians tell the story of how Paul plans to send Timothy and Epaphroditus to the Philippian church. And while it is important, every bit of information in all of these verses is important for us to know and understand, for me, what gets lost here is the bigger picture of how Paul in these verses is exemplifying how he's modeling what he has instructed the Philippians and all of us to do back in verses three and four, when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul certainly has his interests that he's already expressed concern about. But even in his situation, even being imprisoned, he considers the interests of the folks in Philippi above his own, which prompts his plans to send Timothy and to send Epaphroditus. Now, remember, the congregation in Philippi had become concerned about Paul when they heard that he had been arrested. And that led them to pool their resources together and have Epaphroditus take them to Paul, where he would also, in verse 25, as it says there, take care of Paul's needs. And while they were likely praying for Paul um, with this continuing concern for him, they got word that their messenger, their minister, Epaphroditus, had become ill and almost died. And so with Paul being imprisoned and Epaphroditus being gravely ill, Paul's partners in the gospel in Philippi were understandably experiencing a great deal of sadness, and they likely found it hard to experience any joy. And so Paul, being guided by his trust in Jesus and his love for the church, plans to connect these believers with one another so that joy is restored, so that the church is made stronger, and so that the gospel message continues to get out. And as we focus on connecting and reconnecting others through the act of inviting them to church, I thought it would be a good idea to highlight Paul's description of Epaphroditus in verse 25 so that when we leave here and when we go, because I know everybody's going to go and make disciples, say amen. Thank you. Make me feel better. Uh, and we're going to go. But when we leave here and we are considering uh, going out and making disciples and inviting people to join us, that we'll have some useful information to strengthen those personal conversations, those personal invitations that we extend. In verse 25, Paul says, but I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus. And he calls him my brother, my co-worker, my fellow soldier. And he says that he is also their messenger. And when he calls him a brother, he speaks of establishing a current encouraging relationships as a co-worker. It indicates there's work to be done together. As a fellow soldier, he reminds us of the battles associated with being a believer. And as a messenger, he points to the purpose or our purpose in promoting and proclaiming the gospel message of Jesus Christ. All those things will be on the screen here in just a little bit for those of you who are writing and are going to get mad that I just went through those really, really fast. <laughs> Let's talk about that first one. He calls him a brother, which, again, speaks of establishing encouraging relationships Epaphroditus was sent by his church to take care of the needs of his brother in Christ, Paul. And because Paul was in chains, it is very safe for us to assume that their relationship called for Epaphroditus to, on occasion, find 
ways and words that would encourage Paul as he awaited his upcoming trial. And it's the same kind of encouragement that Epaphroditus would have provided upon gathering again with his church family in Philippi. Now, when it comes to establishing encouraging relationships, the writer of Hebrews tells us to consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And it also says that we are to encourage one another whenever we gather together. Now, to spur uh, one another on or to encourage each other on has that same excitement in this verse in Hebrews and the intensity as provoking and inciting others, which are words that are, that are used normally in a negative context like provoking fights or inciting riots. But what we're being told to do here is to use that same excitement, that same intensity associated with provoking and inciting for the positive life-giving purpose of discipling people to love and serve others. And I believe as we invite people into the church or into a church where they are influenced to establish and develop encouraging relationships, that we will help people move from being church attendees to becoming active participants in other people's lives. Because that's what God is calling us to do. When he says, go and make disciples, he didn't say just go and sit in church. He's telling us to go and get actively involved in the lives of others. And while we do that, we also need to be disciples. So we have to be open to allowing others to be actively involved in our own lives. And so uh, as we go and invite people, invite them to become our brothers and our sisters, invite them to establish some encouraging relationships, invite them to allow us to be active participants in their lives and encourage them to grow in their discipleship so that they can one day become active participants in the lives of others. He calls him his brother. But then he goes on to call him a co-worker, which indicates that there is work to be done together. If you look at Paul's descriptions, and you can read them later, Paul describes Timothy, and then he goes into describing Epaphroditus. And maybe this is just me, but when I look at those two descriptions, he, he really has a lot of love and a lot of trust for each of these men. But in the descriptions, it sounds like Timothy has more of a, a, a more like him relationship, where Epaphroditus has a more with him relationship. And it doesn't mean that Paul's more like him relationship meant he wasn't with him. And it doesn't mean that Epaphroditus' more with him relationship meant, meant that he wasn't in any way like Paul. But it does sound like they have different relationships with Paul. When Paul talks about sending Timothy, he's almost talk about, he's talking about sending the next best guy if he can't make it. Somebody who is almost me is coming soon. But when he talks about Epaphroditus, he talks about somebody who was right there with him, who served alongside him. And so to ensure that the Philippian or that in Philippi, that joy is restored and the church is made stronger and the message keeps getting out. Paul connects and reconnects these uh, the, two, the churches with these two different people with different gifts and different responsibilities. But they each have the same goal. And thinking of different gifts and different people and different responsibilities, but the same goal. I was reminded of the story of Nehemiah. And I love that story of how people got together to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And in that story, as you read it, you see that there are all these gates and you have all these different people like the sheep gate, the fish gate and all these, the, these names. Somebody just wants, me to, wants to hear me say dung gate, right? 
Um, yeah, if there were a bunch of kids in here, they'd crack up. But there are all these gates and all these different people are assigned to repair these gates, these different people. And, and between the gates, there's, there are these huge sections of the wall. And then there are these subsections of the wall. And there are all these people are assigned to repair them and build them up. And over a 52-day period, all of these different people with different gifts and different responsibilities were able to complete the work of rebuilding the wall together because they were committed to the same purpose. They got it done. And they did it even though they were so spread out that many of them did not come into contact with each other while the work was being done. I just want to remind you that at this very moment, in this very building, there is a lot of building and rebuilding and repairing that has taken place in the lives of everybody who has walked through the doors of our church. In here in worship, there's our worship team who minister to us in song. There are the tech folk who are all around this place. You see some and you don't see others who are taking care of making sure that all the lights are on and that you can hear us clearly. Out in the lobby, when you came through, you passed so many of the members of our guest services team, even in the parking lot. There were guys out there and they are doing their best to minister to all of us. When it comes to facilities, Steve does an amazing job to make sure that every time we come in here, we're as comfortable as we possibly can be. Downstairs, we have kids and students who are being taught the word of Jesus Christ across the hall. There's the nursery where so many kids are learning, whether it's uh, um, they're being taught something or just being held by a loving child of God. Amen. And then we have the prayer team that we invite you to meet every Sunday in the corner here if you'd like to. And there are so many other things going on. And right now, we are all serving in these ministries and more. you got these different people with different gifts and different responsibilities who are working together with the purpose of making disciples by influencing others to find and follow Jesus. This is what we want to do as co-workers, that there is work to be done. We are not co-sitters. We are co-workers. We are co-laborers with Christ and one another, and there is always work to be done. So let's invite people to become our co-workers. Paul also calls him a fellow soldier, which uh, reminds us of the battles associated with being believers. Now, I don't want to scare anybody. You know, inviting people uh, is already um, a little scary for folks. Uh, but I don't want to scare somebody who may be a bit nervous about inviting someone to church. But I do want to make sure that you are prepared for what could happen. Now, every invitation, while every invitation that uh, you extend to church and every conversation you might initiate about Jesus Christ won't lead to a battle, you should be aware that each of those will occur on the battlefield. In Romans 12, Paul tells us in Romans 12 too, he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This world that Paul mentions in this text here is the battlefield on which we serve. So when we dare to go out into the battlefield to invite people to come to church, to make disciples, to renew their minds. It's in our best interest to be prepared for the possibility of battle, even if it doesn't occur. In Ephesians 6, we're told to put on the whole armor of God 
so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And I just want you to be aware of the fact that the devil's schemes sometimes plays its way out in simple conversations about people coming to church. He will use people that you're talking to to get you to start thinking differently than you've been taught to think about your relationship with Jesus Christ. And in those moments, we've got to be able, we've got to be equipped, we've got to be prepared to do what God wants us to do, and that is simply stand. Because when we read the section of Ephesians 6 where it talks about the whole armor of God, we start looking at the belt uh, of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, you know, at the sword of spirit and all those things. And what can be missed in there is there is a reason why he says we need to have these things on so that we can stand against the wiles of the devil so that when these things pop up in conversation, we can stand. And to stand means to remain, to, to abide, to continue, to endure. And we've just got to be ready. Now, I'm not saying you have to know everything. You just need to know what you know. And sometimes you just need to know when to say you don't know in the conversation. No opinions, no guesses. I don't know. But I do know where to find the answer. But we do need to make sure that we are prepared to stand and to just speak the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was uh, pastoring, it was in Baltimore, and I was sitting in my office um, working like really, really hard like pastors do when we're sitting in our offices. <laughs> and um, I get a phone call it's from a woman of the church and very active uh, person. And she was having some issues with her mom, um, couldn't get her to come to church. Her mom was a Jehovah's Witness and didn't want to worship with us. And um, so and she had talked to me about this before, said she was going to call me, talk about it a little bit. So I'm on the phone in my office working hard and she calls. Hey, Pastor, um, you know, I talked to you. I just want to talk to you about my mom. You know, she's not coming. Jehovah's Witnesses, because I just don't know. I just, I just don't know what to tell her or say to her. And I just wanted to get, you know, some insight from you. And I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, we can talk about it. Um, she says, okay, well, let me put it on speaker. She's right here with me. <laughs> I was like, what? And I told you I was working hard. And I wasn't studying, you know, the difference between our faith and that of the Jehovah's Witnesses. So in that moment, it was it was funny because they weren't with me, so they couldn't see me. So I put the phone on speaker and I very quietly moved over to my bookshelf where I just started snatching anything I thought I would need. And I had Bibles open, different books, and I'm ready to go. And her mom is asking these questions and I'm shooting answers back. And she's asking, we're having this conversation. And maybe a half hour later, we get off the phone. And I realized that I didn't use anything in front of me except to look up a scripture on occasion. And what I realized then after we got off is something that my pastor, Joe Keaton, had told me. He's a man who licensed me, ordained me, and taught me basically everything I know about pastoring. And one of the things he told me, he says, son, make sure that you're always filling your well. He was an old country guy from West Virginia. And imagine an old well with a bucket, you know, that you, you, you know, turn the handle and it goes down, comes up. But he, would, he, he said, always make sure that you are filling your well. And what he meant by that is he said, always be reading, 
Always be praying, always be studying, always put something in your well so that when you need to draw from, from it, it's not empty. And in that moment, what I realized is that I had filled my well enough to be ready to draw from it in that moment so that I can have that conversation with that woman and her mom. And that's all I'm saying to you guys when it comes to being ready and standing against the wiles of the devil. Just keep filling your bucket. Don't wait until he shows up. But just fill the bucket and it just keep reading. And you don't even know how much you've gotten in your well. You don't know how much is there. You just keep putting it in. And guess what? Every time I drew from it, God made sure exactly what I need came out of the well. No waste, nothing else, just that. And so invite people to be fellow soldiers with us here at our church. And then lastly, he calls him a messenger, uh, which points to our purpose in promoting and proclaiming the gospel of Christ Jesus. Now, I don't, I, don't, I don't have a whole lot here to say to you, except I just want to encourage you with this, to go with the confidence of knowing that you are God's messenger and with the assurance found in the words of Jesus in the Great Commission that he's going to be with you always. When I was in um, seminary uh, at Virginia Union, uh, one of arguably one of the best preaching teachers ever uh, Dr. Miles Jones, he was our first year preaching teacher, excellent wordsmith. I mean, I loved listening to him. Uh, but one of the things he told us, and I don't know if he was, I don't know who he was quoting here, but he said, preaching is the action that creates the avenue for love's entrance into human affairs, love being Jesus. And so preaching is the action that creates the avenue for love's entrance into human affairs. And he was just teaching us that we've got to be as serious as possible about our teaching because that's one of the things that opens the way for God to enter into other people's lives. And I want to tell you that you might not be a preacher, but you are a messenger. And I would adjust it just a little bit to let you know that being God's messenger and proclaiming the word of God, preaching, teaching, inviting, whatever the case may be, is the action that you can use to create the avenue for Jesus Christ, the love of God, to enter into somebody else's life. And so let's invite people to be our brothers and sisters. Let's invite them as we go to be our co-workers. Let's invite them as we go to be our fellow soldiers. And let's invite them as we go to be messengers of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, our Father, we are so grateful for um, just being able to gather and to experience the joy that you have for all of us every time we come, the joy that we get from the music, the joy we get from the preaching, the joy we get from being with one another, but especially the joy that we get from you, God. And we just ask you as we go, to make disciples as we go to invite others to join us. That we do so with the mindset of drawing them near by the blood of Jesus Christ. We know there are a lot of things that will attract people to church and join us, and that's great. But we want to make sure that people are coming for the right reason, and that reason is to see you. 
So give us everything we need to be your representatives, your ambassadors in the world as we go out not only to tell people about Jesus Christ, but also to show them how good he's been to us. I pray that we have the courage to even be transparent and even vulnerable on occasion so that people will see that as much as our lives have become better with Christ, that we're still human, that we're still struggling, that we're still facing challenges. But we know, just like the word says, that Jesus will be with us always. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.